to present the Supreme Court as as a force of bad mm-hmm. in American history. And my personal politics are progressive, but I would hope that most of the claims I make in there are not politically controversial. You just heard Ian Milheiser, senior fellow at the Center for American Progress Action Fund, editor of Think Progress Justice, and author of Injustices, the Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this is Common Ground. In the past year, we've seen a lot of drama on the Supreme Court. In 2015, the court decided in Abergefell v. Hodges that same-sex couples have a constitutional right to marry. In 2016, the hugely influential conservative justice Antonin Scalia died. And in his wake, Senate Republicans have refused to hold hearings to consider President Obama's nominee to replace Scalia, the federal judge Merrick Garland. These major events have brought attention to the court and its legacy. Ian Milheiser's book, Injustices, takes up that legacy, but certainly doesn't glorify it. Those who venerate the court probably won't find this book much fun. I'll quote Milheiser so you can get a sense of his take, and then we'll just jump right into the interview. Time and time again, Milheiser writes, the justices have taken the trust our Constitution places in them and wielded it to comfort the comfortable and afflict the afflicted. They've read doubtful ideologies into the Constitution's vaguest phrases, and they've ignored provisions intended to protect the unpopular and the least fortunate. All right, let's get to it. Thanks for listening to Common Ground. Thanks for talking with me, Ian. I just want to jump right into your book, Injustices. Uh, So you begin that book with an anecdote Mm -hmm. about the Colfax riot and the Supreme Court's 1876 decision to overturn the conviction of three white men who murdered a group of African Americans. Why do you start with that anecdote? Well, because, you know, if, if you have the opportunity to start with the massacre, it's always <laughs> sure, a good sure, way sure. to get people's yeah, attention. That's true. Um, no, I mean, the, the, the Colfax riot was, you know, one of the darkest periods in American history that led to one of the darkest moments in the Supreme Court's history. Mm. As Reconstruction, you know, began to weaken, Southern whites began to form white supremacist mobs sometimes, you know, gave them official names like the Ku Klux Klan or the Knights of the White Camellia. Sometimes they were more ad hoc. Um, And they began to use violence and the threat of violence and other acts of terrorism Mm -hmm. in order to, you know, regain control of Southern governments. What happened in Colfax, Louisiana, is there was a contested election African-American Republicans occupied a courthouse because they felt that if they, that was the county seat, they felt that if they physically controlled the courthouse, they would control the government. And a white supremacist mob armed itself with cannons and rifles and other weapons and marched on the the African-Americans who were holding the courthouse eventually lit the courthouse on fire mm-hmm. and massacred the, the people in, in the courthouse. Um, when this made it up to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court threw out the conviction of one of the people who, had, who had, was one of the leaders of this mob. So, so in a federal court previously, this person had already been yeah, convicted. Yeah, so this person had yeah. been convicted. I mean, it's actually, a, 
you know, one of the remarkable untold stories is the story of the prosecutor in okay. this case, who, like, somehow managed to get a conviction um, of this white supremacist mm-hmm. in, Louisiana. in yeah. like, a mixed-race jury mm-hmm. in Louisiana amidst all of this going mm-hmm. on. He obtained a conviction. Um, the Supreme Court tossed it out. And, you know, the, probably the most significant line, you know, up to that point, you know, the, the author of the 14th mm-hmm. Amendment had said that he believed that what this amendment, one of the things this amendment would accomplish would it would be, is it would mean that the Bill of Rights would apply to all the states and not just to the federal government, as it had been understood in the past. And the Supreme Court held in Cruikshank that um, individuals had to look to the states to vindicate their rights. And, you know, when, when you think about what the Supreme Court was telling black people mm-hmm. in southern states, mm-hmm. you know, oh yeah, like you know, you've got to look to the white supremacist right, 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 government, right. you know, you know, you know, you look look to George Wallace, look to Bull right, Connor, right. look to uh, um, you know, you know, whatever odious figure you want to name. Crookshank was, you know, one of the one of the most important steps in making Jim Crow possible. Well, and I want to throw out a couple of quotations from your book for listeners just so that they can get a sense of your argument. So specifically, you write in the introduction uh, about the marker in Colfax that commemorates the riot. You write, the events this marker touts, the death of Greek construction, the birth of Southern apartheid, and the near century of white supremacy that followed, did not simply emerge from a single day's slaughter. They were shepherded into, into being by one of the most powerful and most malign institutions in American history, the Supreme Court of the United States. You go on to write that, and this is in a, a, a later page, quote, few institutions have inflicted greater suffering on more Americans than the Supreme Court of the United States, end quote. That's a powerful beginning to the mm-hmm. book. It's also an aggressive one. Right. Was your general goal in writing this book to paint the Supreme Court as a regressive rather than progressive force in American life? I, I mean, I, I think that it was certainly my. I mean, you, it's right there in the title, right. Justices. Right. You, you know, I mean, it was to, to present the Supreme Court as as a force of bad mm-hmm. in American history. And my personal politics are progressive, but I would hope that most of the claims I make in there are not politically controversial. You know, I, I, I do not think it's particularly controversial right now that if a white supremacist mob decides to kill dozens of African Americans, mm-hmm. that that should be a crime. You, you know, I, I don't think that it is controversial that segregation, Jim Crow, should have been struck down much sooner than it was. You know, I don't think it's controversial that we should have child labor laws. I don't think it's, con- it's particularly controversial, although sadly it's becoming more so, that we should have a minimum wage. And, and you're referencing, so in listing child labor laws and minimum wage, you're referencing specific cases that I you am. talk about in the book. So which cases are these? So, so well, I mean, let's start with the child labor case. Yeah. This is a case called Hammer v. Dagenhart. Um, and I have a number of, you know, one thing that I wanted to do with the book is, you know, there's a, there's a million books out there that discuss legal doctrine mm-hmm. and, like, discuss at a broad level, yeah, like, Hammer v. Dagenhart happened, it struck down federal child labor laws, um, and then it sort of leads to the reader, you know, to imagine what that meant. Right. And so I wanted to tell this story of the Supreme Court's history through the eyes of the people who were hurt the most by it. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and so I talk about six-year-old boys um, working in, working in uh, what were called coal breakers, where when the coal was mined, often there would be some worthless slate that would be mingled with the coals. And they would build these wedge-shaped buildings and send the coal like essentially downhill in right. these buildings. And hovering over it would be six-year-old boys who would have to reach in and pick out the slate. And sometimes they get their fingers cut off. And there would be a guy who was behind them and would beat them with a stick. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I talk about boys who worked in dye mills and were soaked in toxic dyes. Mm -hmm. I talk about um, you know, the utter um, lack of access to education. I talk about, I, I mean, like, very common, surprisingly common substances um, could do a great deal of harm to these children. Right. Um, there, there were oyster and shrimp canneries all along the, um, the East Coast where entire families would go. And shrimp, as it turns out, is very caustic. And so when a child was working, um, picking out the shrimp, um, they could only work until they, uh, the, the, the shrimp began to eat through their skin or, through, or until the cold from the ice it was packed in made it so that their hands stopped working. Right. Um, and so this is what we subjected children to for, for many decades. Um, Congress passed a law saying that we weren't going to do this anymore. Right. And the Supreme Court struck it down in a five to four decision um, the reasoning of which tracks very closely with um, the reasoning offered by many opponents of the Affordable Care Act when they wanted that law to be mm -hmm. struck down many years later. Um, and it, it, it's, it's a bizarre opinion. I mean, the, the, the Constitution says that Congress shall regulate commerce among the several states and you know, why are children working in coal mines or cotton mills or mm -hmm. shrimperies? It, it, it's so that, you know, they can produce the products which are sold in commerce mm -hmm. amongst the several states. This, this shouldn't be a hard question. Um, and yet somehow we got this decision that we got. Well, so the, there's an important line. You write, time and time again, the justices have taken the trust our Constitution places in them and wielded it to this is the subtitle of your book, Comfort the Comfortable and Afflict the Afflicted. They've read doubtful ideologies into the Constitution's vaguest phrases, mm -hmm. and they've ignored provisions intended to protect the unpopular and the least fortunate, as in the case you just um, talked about. So this is your sense of at least part of right. the Supreme Court's legacy. Do you think most Americans agree? I mean, the sense that, that I get generally is that the Supreme Court is viewed in sort of popular culture yeah. as an arcane and noble institution of sort of caped men and women. Yeah, I mean, I think that most people don't understand, like, the full arc. You know, most right. people probably are not aware that the Supreme Court once struck down minimum wage laws or, you know, or, max, or, uh, or child labor laws. You know, I think that most people probably do have some understanding that, like, there was segregation in this country right. and... They might know about Plessy v. Ferguson, um, which was the decision upholding segregation. They're more likely to know about Brown v. Board of Education, which, as I explained in Injustices, actually accomplished far little, mm -hmm. far, far less mm -hmm. than we tend to think that, that it was. But, I mean, I think that the narrative that most people who, who have a view, 
have, have told themselves is that, yeah, there's all these terrible things that happened in the past, mm -hmm. but then Brown v. Board of Education happened, and now that's the past. Right. Um, and the story that I tell there is that, you know, that horrible past was much of American history. I mean, it was really... Um, you know, nearly a century of American history from the, uh, the end of the Civil War, you know, even before the Civil War with Dred Scott, um, through to, at best, when the court handed down Brown. Right. Um, and, you know, when the court has done good in the world, it has often accomplished much less than mm -hmm. we thought. You know, about 10 years after Brown, only a tiny fraction of African-American children in the South attended integrated schools. And it was because the courts weren't particularly well suited to that project. There was massive resistance from the Southern states. Um, in order to get a court order enforcing, um, a, you know, first getting a desegregation decree mm -hmm. and then enforcing it, you had to have a plaintiff who was willing to bring a lawsuit against a segregated school. As it turns out, the Ku Klux Klan had a very effective way of dealing with people who were considered considering becoming such a plaintiff. Um, you know, so it, the, the, the courts were much less effective in this project than we tend to think of them as being. Um, the moment that turned around um, segregation and that really began to dismantle Jim Crow, um, to the extent that it has been dismantled, is that... Um, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 mm -hmm. um, allowed the federal government to bring suits in its own name, so you know the NAACP didn't have to chase around for some brave family that was willing to risk its life in order to bring a lawsuit. Mm -hmm. um, and it empowered, uh, and then that and subsequent laws empowered the federal government to strip schools of funding, or at least federal funding if they didn't integrate. And that was what really, you know, that was what led to uh, an explosion of integration. It wasn't Brown. Right. Um, you know, you needed to have, you, you, you needed big government to solve the solution, mm -hmm. to, to have the solution. And yet, yet Brown is in the history books and movies are made about it as right. being this essential moment. And you know, history. exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. and what it really was is like, if anything, like, you know, and I think Brown obviously was correctly decided. Sure. But if anything, the immediate response to Brown was there was some regression because it sparked the massive resistance mm -hmm. from, from white supremacists and, like, you know, led to them being more aggressive than they probably otherwise would have been in mm -hmm. the short term. Um, now, what Brown did do is it gave, you know, it established a constitutional rule that after the Civil Rights Act was enacted the United States could sue to enforce. But you needed Congress to step in, you know, with, with, without action by the elected legislature. You know, the problem was not getting solved. Well, let's, let's talk, because I, I, I'm wondering if some listeners might be thinking of, and I think I, I'm vaguely familiar with this argument, mm -hmm. but um, that the Supreme Court itself shouldn't even consider itself to be a political or progressive mm -hmm. uh, institution. And I kind of want to talk about that point by getting at a, a decision that most listeners probably know about, which is Citizens United. Right. First, what, what is that decision and, and why don't you like it? Because yeah. I know you don't. So, I mean, so Citizens United 
um, held that um, corporations and unions, although like unions have a pittance mm -hmm. to spend compared to you know even just one large um, business entity, um, but corporations and unions are allowed to um, spend unlimited money to influence elections so long as they don't give that money directly to the candidate. Right. So they can run all the ads they want or they can give it to a super PAC or something like that that can then run all the ads that it wants, um, but they can't... Um, but they can't give write a check directly right. to you know to the the Trump campaign, for example. Um, what's most troubling about Citizens United, though, is its vision of corruption. So in the in the nineteen seventies, the Supreme Court said that there's um, First Amendment implications to campaign finance law, and they there are. But they also said that those First Amendment implications can be overcome because we also don't want a corrupt government. Mm -hmm. And you need to have limits on how much money people can take in and how dependent lawmakers will be on the people who give them money or we just have an incredibly corrupt system. Citizens United defined corruption to mean nothing. Right. I mean, Citizens United said that the only thing that really counts is what's called quid pro quo corruption, where like, I'm a lawmaker, you come into my office with a bag of money and say, I will give you this bag of money mm -hmm. if you do X. And that's not how corruption generally works. Like, if for no it's other- It's a bit people, more subtle than that. Yeah, it's a okay. bit more subtle. Sure. And like, for the most part, like people who would like to give such a bribe aren't stupid. Right. And like, <laughs> they know not to say the magic words right. that will actually cause them to get accused of a crime. Um, so, so yeah, um, you know, so, you know, a candidate like holding a fundraiser and, you know, where they have to, uh, where the only people there are going to be a certain type of people with a certain kind of interests. According to the Citizens United, that's not corruption. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'll also say that, like, you know, I, I think there's a lot of reasons to criticize those decisions from the 1970s, saying that corruption is the only reason why you can have campaign finance laws, because there's another way that cases like Citizens United distort our politics that I, I don't know I would describe it as cor corrupting. Mm -hmm. You know, like, corruption means that, like, you are making a decision because someone has essentially bought you. And that's a serious problem in Washington or in state legislatures. But an equally serious problem is if you go to the, you know, like, there are two buildings, one for the Democrats and one for the Republicans, right ne literally right next to the Capitol. Right. And if you go to the top of that, the, 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 those, those buildings, there is a call center where members of Congress spend hours a day cold calling right. donors to beg them for money. Like, I mean, sometimes three, four hours a day. Um, and that's after they might spend an, an hour or two in the morning at a breakfast right. fundraiser. Um, you know, if you're spending six hours a day raising money, that's time you're not spending doing your actual right. job. 
you know, it's, it's time you're not spending meeting with constituents. It's time you're not spending educating yourself about the bills you're working on. It's time you're not spending building relationships with other lawmakers so that if you have a good idea, you can actually get it passed. And um, well, you can't even imagine Congress people wanting to do this themselves. Yeah, it, hours a day, right? yeah, it's a miserable yeah, it's, job. Right. Like you, you, I mean, you could not pay me enough to be right. a member of Congress. Right. Like it is, it is a, is a terrible job. Right. And it's a terrible job for this reason. And so, on top of the fact that these folks like are being corrupted by all the money in the mm-hmm. system, and they don't have um, any time to do their actual job. You also have to ask yourself, what, who would sign up for this? Right, right. And do you want to be led by that person? You, you know, I mean, like, do you want to be led by someone who, who says, you know, I want this job title so much right. that I'm willing to spend four hours a day as a glorified telemarketer? Well, and so, and Citizens United ma- makes this possible because it, o- it basically opens politics up to un- unlimited spending, essentially. Yeah, I mean, well, Citizens United, and I mean, really, Citizens United is the culmination right, of, 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 okay, of, sure. of several decisions. You know, before Citizens United, like, in 2004, you had these things called 527s, which were a way of funneling money into, into elections. Like, but, like, at least amongst election lawyers, mm-hmm. there was always a sense, or at least a fear, that if they pushed the envelope too far... You know the Supreme Court would crack down, right. or you know the law, the law would crack down, and Citizens United was um, the Supreme Court announcing, "Oh no, no, there's no adult supervision here." Right. In fact, adult supervision is unconstitutional. What's the so the in the, the counter argument because there are even some institutions ostensibly, and I yeah. say ostensibly on the left that um, are. Uh, Force, and I'm thinking of the ACLU right. as being an institution that actually upholds or, 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 or likes or at least lives with the Citizens yeah. United decision, and that's because uh, they view free speech right. as an absolute right, not a value that can be held in counterbalance to other values, yeah. and, and they consider political spending a form of right. free speech. Right. So, so free speech, I mean, there are very few, if any, absolute rights right. under the Constitution. I mean, you know, the, the paradigmatic example is falsely screaming fire in a crowded mm. theater. Sure. But, you, yeah. know, you know, I mean, like, if I, you know, if, if, if I am an intelligence analyst and I know where our troops are stationed in the middle of, of, of a war... Right. And I call up the enemy and tell them about it. That's not a protected yeah, like, yeah. All yeah. I've done is sure. engage in speech okay. there. But yeah, sure, sure. as it turns out, I, the <laughs> Constitution okay. actually yeah. allows a prosecution. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, there, there are very few absolute rights. But it's, it's, yeah. a, it's a pretty big one. Yeah, it's a yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. And the reason why we allow campaign finance regulation is because we recognize that there are other countervailing concerns. Right that are of equal importance mm-hmm. as the right to free speech. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, right to free speech is hugely important. It's also important not to have a government that's completely bought and paid for. Okay. You know, it's also, you know, as I was saying, very important that lawmakers are actually able to focus on their actual job. Mm-hmm. Um, and the harms of having a system where lawmakers can be bought... And where even if they are paragons of virtue who somehow stay unbought when mm-hmm. people are writing them huge checks, they're still losing a ton of time. 
um, to all the money that they have to spend spend fundraising that can't be spent on something else. They're still less informed, less educated, you know, less capable of understanding what they're doing and what these laws are they're passing mm-hmm. that impact millions of people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those harms are, are very substantial, and they're substantial enough that they counterbalance the also very important interests that we have in free speech. Well, uh, so a lot of the political speech going on right now about, um, in both parties actually has to do with the question of money in politics mm-hmm. and politics and, and the, the court establishment being bought. Um, uh, what, what are the odds that uh, the, this question, uh, and even Citizens United in particular, will be reconsidered by the Supreme Court anytime soon? Or? I mean, I think if, 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 if Clinton wins, yeah. like... It's all but certain. I mean, I don't know if the court will actually write the words Citizens United is overruled, mm-hmm. but, you know, there are plenty of ways to actually, you know, to make the word corruption mean something without having to write those words. So I think that you're going to see a significant expansion of um, our ability to, you know, the nation's ability to target corruption in politics. Right. If Hillary Clinton is is elected president, because she's right away going to have the opportunity to um, to add a fifth justice to the four right. to, to the four people who dissented in in um, who've just well Kagan was around for Citizens United, but like the four justices who have said that they're interested in reconsidering Citizens United. Um, so yeah, I mean, like it, it all really depends on what what happens in the election. What's the significance then of the Republicans stonewalling Obama's nomination, Merrick Garland? Who I mean, so if Clinton wins, right. she would be at liberty to uh, present uh, or nominate a, yeah. uh, a much more progressive, yeah, uh, and, and much younger. Yes, sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, Garland is, you know, I, I I've met Judge Garland once or twice. He's an extraordinarily nice guy. I have mm-hmm. a world of respect for him, and he's super smart. But he's likely to serve on the Supreme Court for ten or fifteen years okay. if he's confirmed, and yeah. not thirty years. Mm-hmm. Um, and that and that matters. Um, you know, he is. You know, I, I think it's a bit of a misnomer to say that he is, you know, more or less liberal. Mm-hmm. You know, Garland comes from uh, um, comes from a tradition of judicial restraint. You know, he's respectful of precedent. Mm-hmm. He thinks that. Um, you know, he thinks that um, courts generally shouldn't be doing too much when they, you know, when they do take action. They should have, you know, a firm grounding in like the text of the document they're right. relying on to do it. Um, and I tend to agree with him for the most part on, on, on that outlook. I mean, part of a big theme of my book is that look, when c- courts overreach like it normally ends disastrously mm-hmm. and like i think it's a healthy thing to have a justice that um believes that courts should be cautious about um about doing too sure. much um so the reason why the reason why republicans don't want garland confirmed and don't want anyone appointed by a democratic president confirmed is because they no longer believe in that kind of judicial restraint. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I'm old enough to remember when George W. Bush said that he wanted judges who had practiced judicial restraint. But, you know, Barack Obama had been in office for, you know, maybe five minutes mm-hmm. before Republican lawyers started to reverse course on that. We had, you know, 
two lawsuits trying to dismantle the Affordable Care Act, each, you know, the second one even more frivolous than the first. We've had, you know, we've got a lawsuit pending now challenging the president's immigration policies. And mm -hmm. if you actually dig into their arguments, they rest on things like the fact that the president chose to use two words to describe something, mm -hmm. or that the administration chose to use two words to describe something instead of using two other right. words. Like, they're not strong arguments. Right, right. Um, the, uh, you know, there's a challenge making its way up through the courts right now to the Clean Power Plan, um, which is, is President Ob or the Obama administration's most aggressive efforts to, ch to fight climate change. Um, you know, you've got all this birth control litigation going on. You, you know, perhaps because they've had a tough time winning the presidency lately, mm -hmm. the, the, the GOP has decided that it will use the courts as a firewall to prevent legislation that it doesn't like from going into effect. And that requires them to have a majority on the Supreme Court. Right. And if Merrick Garland or anyone that Hillary Clinton would pick is confirmed, then they don't have a majority well, on the Supreme Court. How would you define judicial restraint then? Because I think a lot of people on the right would hold up someone like uh, uh, Scalia as being a standard bearer of judicial restraint in his originalism and his idea that the Constitution should mean what it was intended to mean. Well, the, the, so I guess I have two responses to that. Sure. I mean, one is that it is often undiscoverable what the, Constitu mm -hmm. what, what, what the Constitution meant at the time of the framing. So, you know, what are the privileges or immunities of citizenship? You know, what is cruel and unusual punishment? If you're denied life, liberty, or property, how much process is due? You, you know, the, these are, there are a lot of really vague passages in the Supreme Court. And often when you go back and you dig into the original history, right. what you find out is, yeah, the framers thought they were pretty vague too. Right. And like, there was no consensus at the time as to, as to what they meant. Um, you know, but beyond that, I mean, a big part of my beef with Justice Scalia is if that's what you're going to hang your hat on, at least be consistent. So, you know, Justice Scalia wrote an opinion in a case called Gonzalez v. Raich, where he said that um, whenever the government has the, um, has the power to regulate commerce, they have every power necessary, those were his words, every power necessary to make that regulation effective. Um, the provision that was the primary provision challenged in the first Affordable Care Act lawsuit um, was the so-called individual mandate, the provision requiring most people to either pay, to either get health insurance or pay a little more in their income taxes. And it's important to understand why, why that provision is there. Um, so a whole other part of the Affordable Care Act says that insurance companies aren't allowed to discriminate against you because you have a pre-existing condition. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're sick, if you've got a chronic condition, um, in at least one case, if you have been a rape victim in the past, an insurance company is not allowed to say that we will not cover you for that reason. Um, the problem with that provision, if you just enact that alone, is it creates a huge problem. It, like, it, it blows up the insurance market because if people can wait until the, the last minute when they get sick to buy insurance, Everyone's going to wait till the last minute right. when they get sick to right. buy insurance. 
And what happens is that um, the the insurance pools just like they blow up. Sure. Like you you can't have health insurance under those conditions because you have no one paying into the right. system, everyone taking out of right. the system. So what the individual mandate does is it's a mechanism to force people to buy into the system. You can't have the protections for people with pre-existing conditions unless you also have the individual mandate. Mm-hmm. And no one challenged the pre-existing condition provisions. Like, no one made an argument that those weren't within Congress's right. power. So I go back to what Scalia said. When Congress has the power to enact a regulation of interstate commerce, in this case the pre-existing conditions provisions, they have every power necessary to make it effective, which in this case is the, the individual mandate. Right. Like, Scalia wrote a roadmap to upholding the Affordable Care Act against the challenge that reached the court in 2012, and then he wouldn't follow his own decision. And then three years later, in a case called King v. Burwell, he did more or less the same thing, where he wrote an angry dissent, dissenting from his own theory of statutory interpretation that he described in a book he published a few years before. So, you know... Obviously, like concepts like judicial restraint and judicial activism are, you know, themselves somewhat ambiguous concept, and there's some there's some nuance around the margin mm-hmm. as to what people mean when they say them. But at the very least, you know, your opinion of what the Constitution says or how a law should be interpreted should not change based, you know, based upon who is bringing the suit and what you want the outcome to be. Sure. So, and, and I, I think related to that, you've taken issue in the past with the fact that, or in this book, rather, with the fact that justices have life terms and are not chosen through the democratic process. Well, so, I mean, I, I guess I should be precise. Sure. Like, I mean, I think, you know, the only thing worse than the system we have now is, is an elected judiciary okay. because, like, a judge's job is fundamentally to, um, you know, to apply the law as it is and not to apply the law in the way that would be most popular. Sure. You know, like, there's all kinds of studies, I mean, showing that, you know, for example, in the months leading up to a judge's re-election, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, leading up to an election, sitting judges, you see a, you tend to see a huge spike in um, the harshness of the sentences mm-hmm. that, that judges hand down because they don't want to be attacked for being soft on crime. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have judges who aren't applying the law, they're doing what they think will be popular. We don't right. want that. Right. Um, but there are ways to pick judges that I think leads to a less political process than what we have now. Um, so in Alaska, for example, um, they have a nonpartisan commission and it's made up of you know, people chosen from various communities. You know, the chief justice chairs it, the bar gets to, choo- gets to choose a certain number of seats, mm-hmm. the governor chooses a certain number of seats, and there's enough diverse interest represented that it's harder for this commission to be captured by one political party. Sure. Um, and then the way, when there's a vacancy that opens up in the Alaska Supreme Court, the commission sends a list of names to the governor, and the governor picks one, right? And that's how and that's how they get their justices. Um, this system has was s- successful enough in getting um, politics out of the selection process that there is an Obama appointee mm-hmm. currently sitting on the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, who previously was a Palin appointee, a Sarah Palin oh. appointee, 
to the Alaska Supreme Court. Really? Yeah. So, like, this might be the only thing that Barack oh, Obama and, yeah. and Sarah Palin have ever agreed <laughs> right. on. Um, yeah. You know, so there are ways to pick judges that at least mitigate right. um, the political nature of the court. Do you think, I mean, and the Merrick Garland situation is such an interesting one because I think it, it has to have made clear yeah. how... Uh, ideological this can be. I mean, you've talked in the past, or you've rather talked in this book again, about um, FDR's court packing plan and Mm -hmm. how that would make just clear how uh, judges and and justices can be appointed um, ideologically. Do you think that somehow after after all of the examples we've had of pure ideology in the process, that something will change, that there'll be some sort of change to the process? Um... Well, the problem is that it would require a constitutional sure. amendment, yeah. and the Constitution is nearly impossible to sure. amend. Yeah. Um, I mean, broadly speaking, you know, we may be watching the slow-motion death of our constitutional system right now because our Constitution was not built for an era of, uh, of strong parties. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, well, it wasn't built for an era of strong parties, and it wasn't built for an era where the intractable divides that exist between the two parties fall along the lines that they fall along right, right now. So, you know, in the past, even though we've had periods of divided government in, in the past, you know, for th- must-pass bills, you know, the debt ceiling, you know, the, the, the funding of the government for another year, generally, like, an ad hoc coalition would form that was willing to say, yep, no, we should continue to have an operating federal government for mm-hmm. another year. Um, yep, should probably pay the soldiers. <laughs> like, you know, like, generally, the, it hasn't been hard to, like, at least get people to agree to that general principle. Or, like, you know, hmm, maybe we shouldn't default on our debt right. this year. Like, you know, <laughs> generally, like, you know, there, 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 there wasn't really a vocal opposition sure, to that point. Sure. Um or at least a meaningful one. Um, two things have happened in the in the United States. Um, one is that we have stronger, more clearly defined, more polarized parties mm-hmm. now, where you know the, the the most liberal Republican is well to the right of the most conservative Democrat. Um, you know the the best predictor of how so the, you know, the best predict, predictor of a lawmaker's views on abortion is what they think about taxes. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, mm-hmm. we, we, we've, just, we've just so completely mm-hmm. sorted. Um, and on top of that, the thing where, like, we really can't get along now has become fiscal policy. You know, you know so if you, know, if you look at the crises that occurred, you know, the self-made crises mm-hmm. that occurred during the Obama presidency, what they come down to is that the president and Republicans who controlled at least one House of Congress had fundamentally different notions about what it was appropriate for the government to spend money on. And the Republicans were willing to engage in extortionate tactics mm. in order to try to move the president, um, you know, threatening to cause a, a debt default or, 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 or what have you. Um, and that's a relatively new development in American history. And it's not how most modern democracies operate. Um, there's a, you know, a famous political scientist named Juan Lintz. Um, he recently died. He was a professor at, at Yale. Hmm. Um, and 
Lintz wrote about the difference between what are called presidential democracies and what are called parliamentary democracies. So in a presidential democracy, there's a separation of powers between the executive and the legislature, and they're chosen in separate elections. In a parliamentary democracy like Canada or Great Britain, there's an election for the legislature, and the legislature typically chooses right. the executive. Um, and the advantage of a parliamentary democracy is that you don't have what you have in the United States, where you have two competing power centers who can't agree on a must-pass bill, and both of them have an equal claim to democratic legitimacy. Sure. You know, I mean, I remember during one of the many um, shutdown crises, you know, Obama was saying, look, like, I was elected president, you have to deal with me, right. people voted for me. And there was a Republican congressman on TV responding to him who said, well, look, I was elected too. And, and he had a point. Right. The problem with our system is that, like, there really isn't any clear moral principle mm -hmm. that allows you to say that either the only public official who has been elected by the, entire, by the nation as a whole or the party that helps control the majority in the, sure. in the House of Representatives has a greater claim to legitimacy. Um, and so you wind up with the situation we have now. Maybe the fever breaks, you know, maybe some of the sort of off-the-wall tactics that have been deployed in the last year become discredited, mm -hmm. and if, you know, three years from now it's, it's President Hillary Clinton and still Speaker Paul Ryan, right. they just, like sit down and agree that, okay, like, not paying our soldiers isn't an acceptable right. outcome, so let's go ahead and come up with, with a way to fund the government for the next year. But I don't know what's going to cause that. So, yeah, so I'm wondering what you think the best remedy or the most viable remedy would be. Would it, would it be just somehow some kind of cultural change in our, yeah. in our political attitudes, or is it an actual structural change in our political system somehow? Well, I mean, what Lintz said was that presidential democracies tend to fall into military coups mm. because eventually um, there's some sort of conflict that has to be resolved. It can't be resolved. And finally, a general shows up and says, well, someone has to right. do something. You know, I certainly don't think that that's the route that we should go, but um, there's a ton of political science literature exploring the question of how it is that America's had a presidential democracy for this long without experiencing a Linthian collapse. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you know, I mean, we could have another constitutional convention conceivably. I mean, you, you know, the, the constitution we have now, you know, first, I mean, the Articles of Confederation which preceded it were a fundamentally different document. For one thing, like, the 13 states under the Articles of Confederation were really 13 different nations, mm -hmm. and the Articles was really more of a treaty than it was a constitution. Um, but even setting that aside, the article said that the only way to amend it was with unanimous consent. Mm -hmm. And the Philadelphia Convention got together and they just decided to ignore that. And eventually they got unanimous consent for mm -hmm. the new constitution, but the, by its terms you only, needed, you only needed nine states to ratify it. Um, and they were able to get away with that essentially because they got away with it. I, I mean, they, they did the right things to get away with it. They had like most of you know the, the elites of their era behind them and like you know they got a vote in congress to give them you know under the congress under the articles to give them some legitimacy i mean they they did things to legitimize themselves 
um, and that helped them get away with mm-hmm. it. But ultimately, like, we enacted an unconstitutional constitution and still have it because we got away with it. Oh, interesting. Um, and so conceivably, like, if there was a huge national cry for a new constitution, that could conceivably happen again. I don't think that's likely, though. I, I mean, what worries me is that if we do go off the rails, like... Conservatives have been telling a narrative to their rank and file for quite some time about, um, you know, how the real problem is that we don't have enough constraints on government. The real problem is that there aren't more veto points and more obstacles and, you you know, more explicit doctrines preventing the federal government from doing things. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason I wrote Injustices is because I spent a lot of time offering another narrative where I say, like, no, like, the, actually it's a problem that we have too many veto points and that there's too much ambiguity in our Constitution that can be used by judges to shut things down that they shouldn't have shut down. And, you know, we should, we should trust the democratic process mm-hmm. more. And you can have a consensus that um, what we have now fundamentally isn't working. Right. But that doesn't mean you're right. going to have... A, right. I mean, not only that you're not going to have a consensus as to what the solution is, but, like, you're probably going to have two dominant proposals mm-hmm. that are diametrically opposed to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, Potentially making a constitution even more vague than the one that we already yeah. have. Yeah. You know, or you can yeah. have... I mean, I mean, like, earlier today, you know, Governor Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, sent out a tweet, because apparently that is how we now conduct, you know, sure. massively sure, important sure. conversations about the future of our constitutional republic, saying that now is a good time to call for a constitutional convention because most of the states have Republican governments, and so Republicans could dom- would dominate the convention. And, you know, maybe he has a point, but, like, let's, you know, let's say because one party has a transient majority in a bunch of states... And they use that to seize the power to rewrite the Constitution. They then write provisions in there that most of the country finds abhorrent. Mm -hmm. And then we wake up the next morning realizing we're locked into this Constitution (laughs) that, you know, at least half of the country thinks is repulsive. I mean, what what do you do then? I mean, like... Do you, you know, assuming that this new constitution that was written to lock one party's policy preferences in place has a mechanism to reverse it, do you try to use that mechanism? You know, do you, you know, do you try to elect someone who will just declare it to be, a, you will just declare it to be an illegitimate document, and 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 maybe we go back to the old constitution? Do you have an armed revolution? You know, you know, I, I mean, like. There's a lot of dark places that, that, that you can go when you have a system that doesn't allow, you, you, I mean, not, not only doesn't allow the preferences of the, of the electorate to be enacted, but that often doesn't allow very basic functions of governance to take place. On this, so on this mildly apocalyptic note, can I ask you a couple <laughs> questions about yourself? Sure. Okay. So, well, how, how, how and when did you become interested in the law? Um, I, so, I mean, my background, I, I was a school teacher. I, 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 did, uh, I did Teach for America in the Mississippi Delta mm-hmm. in, a, 
in a little town where people prayed and God was deaf. I mean, it was horrible. Oh, what wow. um, you know, the, the things I saw in that town, the the, the segregation, mm-hmm. the the lack of opportunity. Um, you know, I remember one of my students saying to me at one point, you know, Mr. Milhiser, I have friends at other schools, and they just know stuff that we don't know. Gosh. And yeah, I mean, what do you say to that? Right. Um, and I realized that um, I, I realized that I wasn't going to solve this problem a hundred kids at a time mm-hmm. as a classroom teacher. So I went to law school looking to tap into something more powerful than that, the, the, the power of the law. You know, I used to have a much more aggressive theory about what courts should be doing. Sure. Um, you know, the thing that made me realize that we should be cautious of courts is after, um, you know, after Barack Obama was elected president and after we were done celebrating and we got down to the, um, and, you know, people got down to the business of governing, and passed a law that was long overdue that has already saved tens of thousands of lives Mm -hmm. and, you know, brought millions of people out of, you know, if not abject poverty, just terrible financial choices. Um, You know, there's a piece I wrote a while back where I interviewed a woman um, who has cystic fibrosis and... um, it's actually dangerous for her to go back to work mm-hmm. because um, when she she received a lung transplant and she um, the lungs came with an infection and it's a disease that like you and I probably have it and we aren't mm-hmm. even aware of it but if you're on immunosuppressants which she has to be on for the rest of her life so she doesn't reject her lungs then that disease can flare up at any moment and, and like, make it impossible for her to go to work for three weeks at a time. And she can catch something from one of her colleagues that is nothing to them and life-threatening to her. Sure. And so, I mean, you know, her husband has income, but, like, it's it's unclear if and when she's going to be able to go back into the workforce. You know, she is able to live and, you know, get treatment from the doctors she wants and to to pay her medical bills because of the Affordable Care Act. You know, because that right. you know, that gives her a way that she can be insured. Um, you know, she told me when she was, I think, 15 years old, her father pulled her aside and said, look, you have a chronic life-threatening disease and that means you must go to college because you have to have a job where you'll get health benefits. Right. So that, that was the burden that was put on her when she was 15. And after we fixed that problem, to have someone bring a lawsuit, and then to almost lose that lawsuit, we should be cautious about allowing five people who aren't elected to make that kind of decision for millions of people's lives. So... I- I'm wondering because you, so you clearly got into the law in part because of your your empathy for people in the situations that you've that you've been in with them. Um, which which justices or judges have you admired in history who have have done the law in the way that you would like to do it? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a it's a large question. 
I think very highly of Justice Kagan, mm -hmm. just because she's smarter than humans. <laughs> I, I mean, like, sure, sure. she's so on, like, right. on a court where, you know, I have a lot of disagreements with this court, but, like, on, but there are a lot of big brains on this sure. court. And she is far and away the smartest. Oh, oh interesting. You think yeah. so? Oh, okay. God, she's so smart. You know, and I mean, able to just pick apart bad arguments and then, you know, and just, I mean, you know, very effective writer, very effective questioner. Um, you know, I think very highly of Justice Kagan. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I also, I think very highly of Justice Ginsburg mm -hmm. because, especially as an attorney, like I mean, Ginsburg is actually very cautious in her own approach to the law. I mean, if you, if you read her opinions, they're very meticulous, mm -hmm. and they're, they're, you know, when she when she dissents, her dissent isn't like you know doesn't say like what you did is wrong. Her dissent goes, you, you know, you know, constructs a very meticulous legal case, and yet working within the tools of the law mm -hmm. and like working within constraints that needed to exist on a branch that is capable of doing a, a great deal of mischief. Ginsburg almost single-handedly created our constitutional um, doctrines governing discrimination against women. Um, I, I mean, she is the most important feminist attorney, mm -hmm. you know, in American history, and whoever is number two isn't even close. Oh, wow. um, you know, I mean, she, in the 1970s, devised and executed a strategy to get the court to say that any government discrimination against women shall be treated with with extraordinary um, skepticism. It's quite an accomplishment, and you know, and she did it in a way that is isn't open ended. That you know was was meticulously crafted. You know, more of that, please. Mm -hmm. Well, I, with with Scalia gone, then, and of course, Justice Ginsburg is, is getting older, and so are, so are Kennedy and Breyer. Um, who, who would you like to see replace them should they retire anytime soon? Well, that's a large question. Okay, sure. Yeah, and and yeah. obviously I don't know. Um, also looks like we're about to lose the room. Okay, um, sure. Yeah, um, you know, I don't know who other presidents are going to appoint. I mean, there are a number of judges. I mean, there's a judge, uh, Nina Pillard, on the D.C. Circuit, mm -hmm. who's also done some very significant um, feminist litigation mm -hmm. that I think would be ideal to replace someone like Justice Ginsburg. You know, I mean, you have to bear in mind that it's a nine-justice court, and often you want to look at who's there right. and figure out what experience is missing and swap that okay. person in. Okay. So, like, a lot of it will depend on what isn't there um, at the time the vacancy comes open. So that it does look like they're kicking us out. Thanks, yeah. thanks very much, yeah, sure Ian. Thing. For I, hope, I hope this me. was. I hope this was helpful. It was very helpful. Cool. Thank you. That was Ian Milheiser talking about his book Injustices. To learn more about Ian, check out his page on thinkprogress.org. Follow him on Twitter at imilheiser, and if you'd like, pick up a copy of his book. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Travis Wheeler edits the podcast and also attempts to delete all of my annoying verbal tics, which listeners really should thank him for. Finally, Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. 
For more information about Ralph and our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GBSU on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground.